All right, school is in session. So take your seats and turn up the volume. volume. It's time for the smartest fishing show on the internet. This is the show that dives into everything fishing from tactics and gear to policy and product. Here he is, the fishing professor, Professor Sid Dobrin. So stick around, you might learn something. Yeah, we are getting odd today on the Inventive Fishing Fishing Professor Show. So thank you for joining us on the casting couch for the Rodcast. I am Sid Dobrin, the Fishing Professor, and I am stoked that you have clicked the play button for this week's show because we have got some high energy talking ahead of us when Joe Hector, owner of Extreme Kayak Fishing, joins me in the inshore offshore digital studio today. The extreme kayak tournaments are some of the highest energy kayak tournaments in the world, and Joe and I will talk about the energy of offshore kayak fishing today. I'll also be counting down my top 10 Wahoo lures, and I'll be getting into a bottle of Clyde Mays straight bourbon whiskey today on the bourbon break. And as always, just a perfunctory note to let you know that the Inventive Fishing Show is owned and operated by Inventive Fishing LLC, and we are not sponsored by anyone, but we're open to such possibilities. Of course, if you like the show, or even if you don't, please share our links with everyone you know. And so you know, if you ever need it and you want to make a comment or leave a question about anything on the show, feel free to email me at sid at inventivefishing.com. So you know it's a great day to get on the water, but it's an even better day to talk fishing on the Fishing Professor Show. So let's get ready to rodcast. All right, we have got a powerhouse in the inshore offshore digital studio today. I am fortunate to have Joe Hector, the owner of Extreme Kayak Fishing Incorporated, or what we're just going to refer to as EKFT for the Extreme Kayak Fishing Tournament, which provides one of the bad assist, if bad assist can be a word, but one of the <laughs> bad assist kayak fishing tournaments in the world. And we're definitely going to talk about that tournament today. Joe is the publisher of Extreme Kayak Fishing Magazine and is the host of the Raw H2O podcast. And to be as blunt about it as possible, the Extreme Kayak Fishing Tournament, the EKFT, has influenced profound changes on the very idea of kayak fishing as well as on the kayak fishing industry and in turn on the recreational fishing industry in total. The extreme tournaments have significantly influenced innovations in kayak design, tackle design, and fishing strategies that have emerged from the growth of this tournament. It's no small exaggeration to say that Joe Hector's influence on kayak fishing has been nothing short of revolutionary. And so, Joe, I know it's old hat to you to do podcasts now, but welcome to the Fishing Professor Rodcast. It's great to have you here, awesome. man. Awesome. Thanks for having me on, Sid. I really appreciate it. And uh, thank you for the for the compliments. And, uh, you know, I've known you for a long time, and it's great to see uh, you and I kind of doing something together again, right? I mean, yeah, it's absolutely. been a long time, but, but uh, you know, it's been great working with you in the past. And, you know, you and I, you know, we've always jived well together. So, uh, again, thanks for having me on as a guest. And, uh, yeah, man, I'm excited. Let's Let's do this. Let's rock. Excellent. So let's let's start off easy, though, and then you know, tell us about the extreme <clears throat> tournaments and the different events like the Sailfish Smackdown, the Summer Series, particularly for those who aren't aware of these tournaments yet, and they're really you know trying to up their game in kayak fishing. 
Yeah. So we start out the year with the Sailfish Smackdown, and that's the nation's only kayak billfish tournament. And it's strictly a sailfish tournament. And these guys go out in the wintertime offshore, usually January, early February. Uh, it's a little rougher around this time. Uh, planning wise, you know, is a little tougher because we always have to take in it into account the weather and a bunch of other factors that kind of go into that. Uh, but it is definitely a unique tournament. Uh, I would say, uh, I would dare to say a little more of an elite type tournament. It's always a lot smaller uh, than the rest of our events for the year. Um, but it's, it's a great event where everything takes place on the water. It is a catch and release tournament. And uh, we have big sponsors for that, like Railblazer, uh, Nautical Ventures, and uh, a bunch of others that really help out SA Company and, uh, and make the tournament great. Um, got, now, what happens is guys go out and they got to battle the surf, first of all. They get through the surf uh, and then they're out and they, they try to find different currents. Uh, usually guys are fishing within, I would say, 80 to 180 feet of water trying to catch these sailfish. Uh, we do have divisions like a mahi-mahi division, which was shattered this year uh, with a 19-pounder, which is a really nice mahi. And uh, so that's a great fish to add. And then we also have like a tuna Calcutta for guys to enter uh, just to give guys more options to win prizes during the tournament. Uh, the second tournament that we have for uh, our season is our very first um, freshwater type event. Uh, we're going into our second year now with the exotic bass roundup. And uh, it's another unique tournament because what I did was I made a freshwater tournament that doesn't target bass. Now it has bass in the title because we target peacock bass. And those of you who don't know what peacock bass are, they're basically a large cichlid uh, from South America that was released here in, I believe the early nineties uh, to eat the little cichlids that were released from people that were buying them from pet shops. Uh, FWC released these fish here on purpose to get rid of that problem. Then the, those fish themselves started to flourish here in South Florida. And uh, here we are today. And now I wanted to give a professional type tournament to these species, uh, these exotic species that are pretty much well known now here in South Florida. Uh, people all, all over the country come here to fish for these type of tournaments. Uh, uh, fish because you cannot catch them anywhere else uh, in the country. Uh, other fish that are exotics that's in our tournament is the clown knife fish. That is an invasive species here. Uh, we also have the Oscar fish. We have a snakehead Calcutta, uh, which is probably the only kill fish in our tournament. And that's because of the FWC. If you catch that fish, you must kill it. And uh, but the meat is excellent. So uh, we'll have guys on hand that are willing to grill the fish for you or you can take it home yourself. Um, and again, it's what's great about this tournament is all the different species. Right. We try to always give anglers every opportunity to win something in our tournaments. And uh, this one's designed a little bit like a Bassmaster Classic where we have a big holding tank by the stage part of the event where when anglers come up, to uh, showcase their fish, the fish will be alive for the most part, except the snakeheads, and we'll do the weigh-in right there in front of people. Um, I've always been uh, someone that 
uh, harps on having people come to a live show. Uh, I've always been into the event part of my tournaments. So if you do fish an extreme tournament, uh, we try to always make it about everyone, uh, the businesses, the people, the kids, um, and try to get everyone involved. So uh, that's our exotic bass tournament going into our second year. Um, we also wanted to cast a wider net for the freshwater guys since we've done offshore now for pretty much over a decade. Uh, and that now brings us to my baby, uh, the tournament that's been going on for over a decade, and that's the Summer Slam series. It started off as one tournament. Now it's two. Uh, it'll take place in June and August. And uh, that's the big one for the year. Uh, that's where we have the big stage off Pompano Beach. We have uh, vendors that come out with uh, 10 by 10 vendor tents. We have Budweiser come out for beer and drinks, Coca-Cola. We have um, uh, Jersey Mike Subs, Zona Fresca. So we got food and entertainment, live music, uh, the whole shabam for people. I mean, anglers can even get like massages when they get off the the beach because we have massage companies that and you know chiropractors that come out uh we try to to bring it all uh with this type of tournament uh we also have a uh it's called the sunshine sub series they're a paddleboard race that goes in conjunction with that type of tournament uh and our tournament by the way is a meat tournament so once again if, if you look at kind of each event that we do they're totally different each one of them uh, and with the Summer Slam, that's more of like uh, wahoo, tuna. We got the mahi-mahi back. We got the kingfish. And that is a kale tournament uh, for the eligible fish. Uh, we do donate some of the meat to the tackle shops. Um, and we also, uh, and some of, we, well, we've had in the past some soup companies, stuff like that for the higher quality uh, type of fish. Um, our charity for that event, uh, actually for all the events, is the Broward Children's Center. And we have uh, kickoff parties before each tournament. Again, giving people um, more ways to win prizes with our awesome raffle. And that money goes to the kids at the Children's Center. Uh, and that usually takes place at Brews Room or Duffy's for the exotic tournament, which is way out west. Uh, <clears throat> with the Summer Slam, it's more of a big show type tournament. I'm on the stage with the mic. Uh, we have uh, anglers that come up, showcase their big checks. We have the fish that are literally uh, hung so that all the uh, crowd can see the fish. And I play a game uh, for the kids called Guess the Weight. And if they get it right, they get a prize. If they get it wrong, they get a prize. So it's a fun game for family and kids and all that. The kids scream. It's just nuts. Uh, I get into it heavily. Uh, I love, uh, that's probably one of my favorite parts of the tournament and, uh, we just have a good time. So we throw out prizes throughout the whole thing from all of our awesome sponsors. Um, so yeah, that's pretty much in a nutshell. I know it's a lot for me to say, but, uh, that's kind of what we are all about for the year and what we offer and bring, uh, for, uh, people that want to come to events. Excellent. Yeah. And having been there, I can say it is a great time. It absolutely is. And it is a show. So let's talk about offshore kayak fishing then, because, you know, you're talking about what you've just talked about. You're talking about blackfin tuna. You're talking about wahoo. You're talking about kingfish. You're talking about mahi. And you're also talking about some billfish. And 
targeting uh, pelagics or deep reef fish is very different than fishing inshore from a kayak or fishing offshore from a boat. So correct me if I'm wrong, we'll start with some basic strategies, but particularly early on, the key to winning these tournaments was live bait, right? Yeah, I mean, the key to any one of my tournaments, including the freshwater one, uh, is going to be live bait. Uh, I have always been uh, a guy that, uh, I'm a saltwater guy, right? So saltwater guy is usually more into the live bait, where freshwater, you can kind of get a mix of, uh, there's a lot of tournaments, for instance, in freshwater that is just, you know, uh, lures and all that. Uh, but for me, for my type of events, live bait is everything that is your lifeline and it's something that uh every angler needs to win in my type of tournament uh the good thing about what we do is we give these anglers lots of options including uh like tyler now uh joe and like joe in the past that would come to our tournaments uh in the morning and supply these anglers with live bait right there right where they're shooting off in the morning uh, and for our kickoff party, anglers will usually uh, pre-order the bait. And when the, like Joe or Tyler comes to the kickoff party, that's where I'll announce it and anglers can pay and, you know, do everything and what they need to do to get their bait and make sure that they'll have it for the next day or two days later uh, for the tournament. So we do everything we can so that these guys can get their bait, go fish, compete in the tournament. And so let's talk about that because, yeah, you know, Keeping live bait on a kayak is a challenge. Um, you know, if you're trying to tow a live bait well, like a flow troll or something like that, you're adding drag to your paddle. Um, and early on, only Hobie had made a uh, live bait well designed for a kayak. So there's a lot of DIY that goes into creating live bait wells for kayaks because, you know, you pick up your bait in the morning and you're on the water all day, you've got to keep that, you know, the goggle eyes and all the other bait alive. And so the, the tournament has had some serious influence on how we think about keeping live bait alive on a kayak. Sure. I mean, you know, if you go to, let's say a summer slam, right. And you walk, you know, up and down the beach looking at over a hundred kayakers, right. Every kayak is the extension of an angler. Right. Which means also every kayak is different. And that's that's what's really cool about my type of tournaments. You know, every, the the do it yourself kind of mentality to build your own stuff uh, on your extension of yourself as an angler um, is something that we really highly promote. And you see it. Uh, it's, it's a really cool thing to see uh, in the morning at our shoot offs, all the different stuff that these guys have built outriggers uh you know i mean just everything leds radio systems i mean things you cannot even imagine and when it comes to bait uh you're absolutely right sid you know these guys have done it all when it comes to keeping live bait i've seen from my old days of the you know back in 2008 and 7 of the five gallon bucket with two aerators to the Hobie live well being created to different types of live wells being created from multiple different either companies or Hobie. I believe Hobie has three now, something like that. So um, you've really seen the growth of these technologies from when we started to where we are now today, uh, even with the kayak brands. I mean, when we started, you know, you would see a lot of the paddle 
kayaks, like like the oceans. You'd see Malibus. Um, fast forward to over a decade now, you're seeing Hobies, Old Towns, stuff like that. So um, the evolution of the sport you could see by scrolling through our photos throughout the years. So part of that evolution has also been motivation and tactics and tactics, tactics and approaches. So for instance, your tournament helped innovate changes in kayak jigging styles. That's pretty much where created uh, you created high speed jigging and vertical jigging for kayak anglers. So what do these new jigging styles bring to kayak angling? Yeah. So I, I would definitely say that the high speed jigging uh, phenomenon, right? Uh, guys have always done it, but, but the, that, that quick popularity that popped up in, I think it was like 2012, 13 to today, uh, was really showcased in my tournaments and it was showcased through type of fish these guys were weighing in at the tournaments and then getting in the sunset and all in the papers and the promotion of how these guys won these tournaments, uh, using the high speed jigging. Uh, for like big tuna, kingfish, wahoo, for instance. Um, so, yeah, I mean, uh, to see what these guys have done with that throughout our tournaments have been amazing. And, you know, there's all different styles. Like now everything always comes full circle. Uh, now the big thing is, um, uh, what do they call it? It's uh, slow pitch jigging. And that's kind of now the popular thing. And, and you're seeing anglers highlight the fish they're getting throughout our tournaments using that kind of technique. So to me, it's, it's always kind of like a full circle thing. Guys have done it, uh, but we're the guys that get to kind of bring the, uh, the popularity part to it and showcase it a little more. Um, and that's another <clears throat> big thing that I'm going a little off topic here, but that, that I think has changed throughout the years of our tournaments since we're kind of on that subject is the angler him or herself. Uh, in the beginning we used to get good kayakers that were learning how to fish. Whereas now we get good tournament fishermen that are trying to learn how to kayak. And there's a big difference in weigh-ins when you see the difference in that. Um, we get a lot of guys now that fish the big boat, million dollar boat tournament here, for instance, a lot that come from his tournament that have come over to the kind of kayak world, they'll either rent one, buy one, whatever, but you're, you're still seeing new guys enter the kayak fold, which is pretty amazing after a decade of doing it. Uh, so to now to start to get those boat guys, um, I think is, is a big thing. And, and it's really changed the way our weigh-ins have looked throughout the years for the better. As you're talking, you know, it reminds me of those old MASH episodes, you know, when Hawkeye and all of his surgeon buddies don't have the right tool for the situation. So they have to invent new surgical tools that somehow, you know, completely revolutionize what they're doing. That's what your tournaments are like, you know, that people have to figure out how do I make this work with what I've got? And uh, a lot of innovation at that, at those tournaments, um, you know, one of the things that I that I remember that struck me about the innovation of the tournaments is it was really the first place I had seen the use of Hawaiian spear gaffs as the preferred gaffing method for offshore anglers. And I, I'll say I learned that the hard way the first time I brought a king to the kayak and used the standard hat, uh, hand gaff and about got ripped out of the boat. 
Um, so, you know, that most people don't even think to go to a Hawaiian spear gaff when you're off offshore fishing. Yeah, you're absolutely right. You know, I remember years ago, and I still do this today, even when we did the exotic tournament as recent as last year, I, I make it a point to always, when I, when I want to do something new and I want to kind of bring something to the public that might be new, I'll always reach out to the guys that have done it before me. I think it's very important. I think it's always important to give respect to that. And I remember, uh, speaking of what you're talking about, I reached out many years ago to a guy named Isaac, uh, who ran a company called Aqua Hunters. And they were a company out of Hawaii that would offshore kayak fish and, and spear gaff these, these marlin that they were catching. Yellowfin tuna, I mean, monsters. And to me, it was truly amazing to see what these guys were doing. And I contacted him right away after a friend sent me one of his uh, videos. And then I ended up finding his information. And I'll tell you what, man, uh, guys like John John and, and all those guys out there, uh, I, res- I have so much respect for them. And to see now uh, like a company like Pro Yacker that's a sponsor of my tournament, um, who now is selling those type of, of cage gaffs or there's lots of names for them, but, um, yeah, man, it all started in Hawaii with those guys. And, um, I think it's just so important to kind of try to get everyone involved when it comes to stuff like that, instead of just taking it and saying, Hey, you know, I created it. I'm the guy that done it. But, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's something that's amazing. Those gaffs have really changed the game as well. Uh, you, there's a trick to them. Okay. You can't, as Sid knows now, to just like wing it into something, yeah, you might run into some problems, especially when they're really big. But uh, they are highly effective, and now a lot of guys use them in my tournaments. Yep. Yeah, I think actually you had a vendor selling them there at one point. Yep. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It's funny you mentioned offshore kayaking Hawaii. You've done a fair amount of that, and I, you know, comparatively, that water compared to the water off Pompano are just two different beasts. Also, I mean, oh. just learning how to how to do it all over again in pacific water after having done it out of pompano it's uh, it's a different monster oh yeah totally all game totally different so talk about the battle for the battle of the bahamas and those early tournament series that you know they had the reputation not just of being a phenomenal party but how they really opened the door to what could be accomplished from a kayak and it also sort of opened up the bahamas as a kayak fishing destination too Sure. Yeah. So uh, it's funny. So many people throughout the years always ask me, you know, what happened to the battle in the Bahamas, you know, and, um, you know, that tournament for me and my family was unbelievable. Um, We we've met friends that we still have today. Um, We we met people in the Bahamas that were just truly amazing. And uh, working with the Bahamas and their government and the tourism board was really um, pretty amazing. And and I will say this, too. I I grew up a lot, you know, uh, when we started that tournament, because you got to remember, man, when I started Extreme, I I was like 26. You know what I mean? So, you know, you're still kind of like a kid when when you're you're dealing with so many people and so many different things coming at you. And it's kind of just nuts. And, And the Bahamas really matured me. Uh, especially after the very first one, I learned a lot uh, about logistics, about setting things up the right way, um, about failure, uh, about, about everything, 
really. And, um, you know, it's, it's pretty much an honor to say that we did that tournament for four years because uh, logistically, to be totally blunt and frank with you, it was a nightmare. I mean, to uh, and not for the anglers, but just on the back end that no one knew about. It was a nightmare uh, to transporting a kayak from the United States, putting it on a, another vessel. Uh, and it's all time. You got to remember these ships, they go when they go. If you miss the boat, you miss the boat, man. So like there was one year where the Bohemians were late bringing the kayaks to the ship and we were gone. <laughs> so these guys had to wait another day back here in the United States to receive their kayaks. And they don't even know what, what, I mean, who knows what goes on? You know what I'm saying? So, um, it, it, you learn a lot by, by doing stuff like that. And, um, I think it, I think it also that and the selfish SmackDown, cause we did both those tournaments. They were new tournaments that we did together, uh, in the year 2013, I believe 13 or 14. I think 13, but um, those two tournaments really put us on the map because you got to remember we were doing extreme tournaments for like five years or more, a little more uh, before we did those two tournaments. So we were kind of already sort of getting in that to that veteran stage and we wanted to change it up uh, to kind of just, you know, get new people, try new things. And uh, that was a crazy year uh, changing it up, doing both those type of tournaments. You had, on one end, you had the uh, sale for SmackDown, never been done before, guys catching multiple sales on a kayak or even catching one. And I had guys, I, I would see messages of guys saying, this is a joke, th th this will never happen. Guys can't even catch sale, uh, billfish on kayaks consistently. How is he, you know, and you, you, you look at today and I'm just like, ah. And then you got on the other spectrum, you got to the Bahamas with the doubters saying, how's he going to logistically do this? What does this kid know compared to us? I had all these old veteran tournament directors looking at me, shaking their head, going, this guy's nuts. What is he doing? And it's really cool to look back and, you know, you still have the selfish tournament going on today. And you had the Bahamas tournament that literally was the first uh, real international type uh, kayak tournament uh, locally here. I would say locally as in like the East Coast type of the country. Um, and, and it's cool that that lasted for another four years, you know? So um, we, it ended a lot. And this is where I get all the questions. Why did it end? And uh, basically what happened was we were on a three-year contract when we started. And we, we completed the third-year contract, which to me, that was the, the, uh, that was the awesome thing. Like we did it, we did it in those three years where after the first one, I wasn't too sure. Uh, but learning what we learned, we were able to kind of change things up and, and, you know, the anglers were very patient with, with us too, which helped. Um, and, and we did a second one and that one was awesome. And then we did the third one and that was even better. And the Bahamas approached us to do another three-year contract uh, I didn't want to do that. And then it was kind of a back and forth, uh, for a while. And we did end up doing a one year contract. Um, and then we were going to go year to year. That was kind of the plan. And, uh, so we did one more year and, uh, then things changed within government there. And I don't know if people know the Bahamas and if you don't, it's, it's 
Um, the Bahamas, outside of the Americanized areas, is a very poor country. Um, and it's it's kind of sad, you know. You see like uh, uh, wild dogs running around. It's it's totally different than what normal the normal American person sees. Okay, it actually kind of reminds me of Mexico. I've been to Mexico quite a bit uh, in the real areas, not the Americanized. And it's kind of like that a little bit. Um, and when they changed governments, it, things got a little dicey. And we decided for for all of us, uh, <clears throat> my customers, my wife, me included, uh, we were pretty much done at that point. Um, and we were approached a couple more times to do it again. We were approached by uh, doing one in Belize, believe it or not. Um, yeah, so there were things that were going on in the back end um that were pretty insane um so there was a lot going on at that time when we ended the bahamas and then we what we ended up doing was we were also approached by texas we ended up doing one there that was a one-year gig um and then uh, we came back home and here we are today so uh, uh i really wanted to do a freshwater type tournament with exotics and now my dream's coming true uh doing that awesome so Back to the battle for the Bahamas, because one, there's something that happened there that I think is worth talking about. And that was sure. the, Lots the, yeah, the <laughs> well, that was also the first blue Marlin taken from a yak. Um, and I'm blanking on the angler's name. Was it Matt? I can't remember the, yeah. Uh, ang- yeah. Um, yeah. You know, he hooked a blue Marlin. He fought it for 11 hours, skipped the way in for the tournament. Because bringing a blue marlin in from a kayak, you know, that's that's kind of an epic historic moment. So how important of that was it not just for the tournament, but for the sport of kayak fishing? Oh, it was, it was everything. It was that combined with Joe Kratz landing a white marlin and winning that division, the billfish division, in the tournament. Um, you, you, you know... I mean, listen, to, to get a white Marlin and a blue Marlin in one tournament together is uh, is unbelievable, right? Something I never would have thought would have happened and something that was amazing that it did. And it really put us on the map uh, around the world with that story. And uh, one of the moments I'll never forget was Matt coming in. He needed the boat to take him back because he uh was so far i mean he, he was all the way to freeport by the time you know all the, all that went crazy um and the boat is coming in and matt's on the boat and uh and all of us including you know the anglers uh the people running the tournament uh people that you know were running the hotel uh there to applaud him when he came back uh even though he didn't win anything he won you know what i mean and uh, he won for the sport of, of kayak fishing. And uh, it was amazing to see, you know, to see everyone just cheering and, and um, you know, together. And uh, that, it was great. So along those lines, you and I were recently talking about the tournament. And you mentioned the idea of community and how the tournament operates as kind of a catalyst for a really great sense of community for kayak anglers. And for a still emerging community, why is that sense of camaraderie so important for kayak anglers? Uh, you know, I, I sometimes think about that myself, um, to be honest with you. One thing, though, that 
is so different with kayak fishing compared to being on a boat to me is being on a boat is more about a team on the boat, right? Uh, there's always multiple people on a boat. It's not something you do yourself, really. You know what I'm saying? And on a kayak, it's the opposite, right? You're by yourself. It's all on you. But community-wise, you're taking a bunch of individuals that are in their vessels and you bring them all together. And I think that's the difference where in a boat, it's a bunch of individuals, but on one vessel. So I think there's something to that when it comes to the community and being as uh, close-knit as it is for the sport. Um, you know, it's, it's, but again, it's, it's one of those things where I don't know if it's the individual that, that chooses the sport or what, but there is a thing to it and it's real. So I have this great memory of fishing one of the early tournaments with you guys. And I was slow trolling just off the Gulf Stream, and I heard a horn blast right behind me. And I looked over my shoulder, and the Heineken boat there, the Rebound, that's a 1968 52-foot Merrick Custom that uh, runs out of Holliver there. And they've got, you know, this is a big fishing machine. They've got a full trolling spread out, and they're bearing down on me. And as I kind of leaned over in the kayak and moved the kayak to give them a wider berth, someone on board yells from the bow, what the hell are you doing out here? And um, I yelled back, I'm targeting the same fish and you are and burning a hell of a lot less fuel. <laughs> and uh, there's a, no doubt that the cost of fuel right around 2008 really stoked that kayak revolution. And now we're seeing fuel prices jack up again. Do you think participation in the tournament is going to increase when we have these longer term fuel cost spikes? Almost definitely. We were born during the recession towards the back towards the end of the uh, recession. So a hundred percent with what's going on now um, as, as insane it is um, will definitely get more people into the uh, sport that we're doing. And uh, it, it just has to happen that way. It's just how it is. And um, you'll have guys that are used to going on their center consoles and, and their boats, and they'll be seeing the kayakers a lot more today than back then too. And, uh, and they'll say to themselves, Hey, you know, why not me? And uh, so I definitely, yes, agree that that's going to help boom the, the uh, pedal and paddle sport here very soon. Excellent. All right. Already. Say again, if not already, not already. Right? Yeah. Yeah. All right, so let's wrap this up with my traditional wrap-up question on the Fishing Professor Show. This is something I ask everyone who appears on the show. And, you know, we've talked about Wahoo and Sailfish and Marlin and, and Tuna and Kings, and now you're adding Peacock Bass and some other exotics to your list. But from a, as a kayak angler, What's your grail fish? What's that fish that's still on your bucket list? The one you really want to get from a kayak, uh, your white whale, your golden ticket. What's the fish that's out there waiting for you, Joe? Well, I would say, well, my, my fish has always been Wahoo, right? That's my staple fish. Uh, those who know me know I'm obsessed. I have the tattoo on my arm. That's what launched extreme kayak fishing with my YouTube video of me catching that 65 pounder. Um, 
So I love Wahoo. Now the fish I really want to get, I would say, uh, the Holy Grail, mother of fish, I would have to say a monster Kubera snapper or bluefin tuna on the kayak. That would be awesome. I've caught a bluefin on the boat, so I've done it, but I would love to do that on the kayak one day. What's 500 pound bluefin from a yak back? Oh man. Unbelievable. All you gotta do is go to the, you gotta go a hundred miles to the canyons, man. That's it. Yep. That's all you gotta do. <laughs> yep. Yep. Run out to Norfolk Canyon or someplace. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, Joe, thanks so much for taking the time to be here. Um, really, you know, as I've said, love that tournament series, love what you've done, love what you've contributed to the industry, man. I mean, you really have pushed kayak fishing someplace that it just hadn't been before this tournament. And can't thank you enough for, uh, spending some time with us today. Uh, please give my best to Maria and everybody else at EKFT. And thanks for being here, Joe. Thanks, Sid. I, I really appreciate everything. I appreciate you having me on the show. Uh, the one thing I do also want to add is that Maria, my wife, who started this with me years ago, has definitely been the backbone of this tournament series. And even though uh, it's my face you see a lot, uh, my ugly old mug now, um, Maria is the one who really helped uh, springboard this tournament, uh, dealing with the sponsors and all of the back-end stuff that's so important to keep these tournaments going. She's been the head of it. And uh, without her, we wouldn't be here today. Oh, that's great. So thanks, Maria. And yeah, I mean, there's something, it's also great to watch her on stage, you know, with champagne bottles, dancing <laughs> around with all her friends at the end of the tournament too. So. Oh yeah. It's party time when it's yeah, over, it man. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Joe, you take care. Thanks so much. Hey, Sid, thank you, buddy. I appreciate it. All right, I hear them hound dogs barking, so let's take a bourbon break. In this bourbon break, I want to take a look at a bourbon that I stumbled upon just a couple of years ago, Clyde Mays Straight Bourbon Whiskey. And I will admit that when I say I stumbled upon it, I really just saw it in a liquor store, thought the bottle was cool looking, and grabbed one. Then I heard the story of Clyde May, and the story alone had me interested. And let me be clear about this. Clyde May whiskeys rely heavily on their backstory, and it's a good story. You see, the story of Clyde May is one of those kinds of true American outlaw hero stories. You see, Clyde May was born in 1922, just before the Great Depression. And as soon as I say that, you're thinking, all right, the Great Depression. This is going to be a John Steinbeck quality story, one filled with toughness and true American grit. But anyway, we got to skip ahead to World War II when Clyde May served in the Army's 77th Infantry Division commanding a rifle squad. He ended up earning a Bronze Star recognizing his heroic service in combat, and he earned a Purple Heart. And as you know, that comes from being wounded in combat. That wound sent him back home to Alabama where he took up distilling and became the most wanted moonshiner in Alabama, though some folks say he was the most wanted moonshiner in the country. Them damn revenuers, as the movies like to depict it. They ended up catching up with Clyde, and he ended up doing an eight-month stretch in the Fed Penitentiary at Maxwell Air Force in Montgomery. And as you might imagine, as soon as he got out, he started his stills right back up. So basically, Clyde became the most legendary bootlegger around. And from around 30 years, from the 1950s to the 1980s, 
Clyde was turning out about 300 gallons of moonshine a week using the stills he designed. His shine was getting famous, too, as it was much better quality than what other bootleggers were producing. Clyde mostly sold the shine as corn liquor, unaged, just straight from the still. But he casked some of it in charred barrels and some with dried apples for flavor. He'd aged that cask whiskey for about a year, claiming that the hot Alabama summers accelerated the effect of aging, requiring only one year instead of the minimum two required for it to be called a straight bourbon. Now, interestingly, as a side note, when Clyde got out of Maxwell Air Force Base, the same guy who convicted him, Attorney General John N. Mitchell, he was sentenced to two and a half years to eight years in prison for his role in the Watergate break-in and cover-up. Now, Clyde May died in 1990, and his son Kenny wanted to honor his father's memory by producing legal whiskey from his recipe, and in 2002, working with Kentucky Bourbon Distillers Limited out of Bardstown, Kentucky, and overseen by master distiller Evan Culsveen, Kenny started turning out whiskey legally under the name Koneka Brands. In April 2004, both houses of the Alabama legislature voted to name Koneka Ridge Alabama Fine Whiskey the official spirit, and for a few months, you could buy it in a few liquor stores in Alabama, Georgia, Tennessee, and Florida. But in 2004, it became really hard to get, and most stores stopped carrying it. The word is that there just was too much trouble getting stock to the stores. Now, that same year, Kenny May pled guilty to two misdemeanor charges in Alabama for selling liquor without a license. The result was that Kanaka Ridge lost its distribution license and couldn't sell liquor in Alabama. Like father, like son, I guess. And after all, Clyde May brand motto is literally, it's better to break a law than to cut corners. So in 2009, Spirits Acquisition Corporation out of Dallas bought Koneka Ridge and the Clyde May brands, and they were revitalized. Kenny May died in 2016, the same year that the company released the Clyde May Straight Bourbon. And in 2017, Clyde May's Whiskey announced their plans to build a distillery in Troy, Alabama, about 20 miles away from where Clyde had his still. <clears throat> Interesting side note that until nine, until thousand until 2013 it was illegal to distill spirits in Alabama so all this adds up to one of those rough and tumble post depression prohibition world war 2 tough guy images that Clyde May uses to market its whiskey even the bottle is designed to look like what we want from a bootlegger complete with a picture of Clyde himself sleeves rolled up ready to take on them damn revenueers and protect his still the bottle needs a sound chip in it that plays Steve Earle's Copperhead Road every time you open it. Kanuka Ridge Distillery now turns out six different whiskeys, including Clyde May's Straight Bourbon, a 92-proof bourbon that sells for about $40 a bottle. Clyde May's Straight Bourbon is aged four to five years. It's got a rich, clear characteristic and leans more toward brown than golden. It's got a mash bill of 78% corn, 12% rye, and 10% barley. The nose is sweet. I mean really sweet, like brown sugar and apples with traces of corn, which makes sense given the Clyde May tradition of adding sweet apples to the aging process. That sweet and fruity carryover to the palate is fantastic. 
but they get kicked with a fire burn of alcohol and some spice pulled out of the oak. It's funny, though, in several of the reviews I read before trying Clyde May's straight bourbon whiskey, the reviewers, re reviewers referred to the taste as reminding them of peach cobbler. Well, first I was kind of shocked by the complete plagiarism these reviewers exhibit and the lack of shame in stealing each other's description. But honestly, I never got that taste that reminded me of peach cobbler. Sure, it's sweet and there's fruit there, but I don't get the cobbler. Maybe some cherry and a hint of spice and honey, but not enough to become part of the real body of the taste. The alcohol burn is solid when you drink it neat, but it's tamed when you drink it on the rocks, which enhances the sweetness when the alcohol settles down a bit. The spice jumps up a bit in the finish, and I think the alcohol burn mixed with the spice leaves the finish a bit long. Now, overall, Clyde May's straight bourbon whiskey is a good whiskey. It's certainly not a bad whiskey, but it's not also an, not an outstanding whiskey. There's nothing to complain about, but nothing to rave about either. The story and the label are really the highlights. It's a good whiskey to share, to tell your friends the story, and to sip. I ended up buying some of the other Clyde May liquors, and we'll be tasting them on the bourbon break as well at some point. And I think the Clyde May straight bourbon will be one I keep a bottle on hand for. So those are my thoughts about Clyde May's straight bourbon whiskey. And as a final note and my regular disclaimer, as always, please keep in mind that the Fishing Professor Bourbon Break reviews are not sponsored. The distillers have not sent me samples, nor do they influence my reviews at all. Though I am always open to sponsorship, bribery, and extortion. The bourbons I review are purchased out of pocket, and my reviews are based on the keen sense of bourbon know-how that I have developed over many years in many of this country's finest watering holes, drinking establishments, dives, pubs, honky-tonks, and back-alley speakeasies. Speaking of, let me give a quick shout-out to Munigan's, this drinking establishment here in Gainesville, Florida, a bar that I used to live less than a block away from. So even though it was always difficult to walk after leaving Munigan's, it was easier place to walk home from. Someone owes me a lot of aspirin following nights in Munigan's. And that's that. May you work like you don't need the money, love like you've never been hurt, and dance like no one's watching, screw like it's being filmed, and drink like a true fisherman. As always, if you have comments about this week's bourbon break, feel free to email me at sid at inventivefishing.com, and let's get back on the water. All right, it is time for the Fishing Professor's Top 10 list for the week. And given that we've just heard about some fantastic pelagic fishing from Yakback, I want to keep today's list in the realm of the pelagic. So this week, I'll be taking a look at my top 10 Wahoo lures. Wahoo! Okay, now I know that you hardcore dedicated Wahoo anglers out there all have your faves, and I'll admit up front that I don't get to Wahoo fish as much as I want to, but that don't mean I don't know a thing or two about them who's. So let me break it down for you with 10 of the best Wahoo lures out there. Oh, and let me clarify here too, that this list is for fully rigged lures. I'm not looking at things like Blue Water Candies, 11165 Ballyhoo rigs or other skirt rigs that require adding Ballyhoo or other baits. I'm just looking at full lures. Of course, you can doctor up a bunch of these lures and add skirts, baits, and so on, but these are the lures that can be fished for Wahoo with great success without any additions or modifications. 
And I have to also say that there are a ton of other high-speed Wahoo lures out there. I've heard of many, and I remain ignorant of many more. So my apologies, my apologies to you if I'm not hitting your faves or if you're a manufacturer and I don't have yours, but these are my top 10 Wahoo lures. All right, let's kick off this in generic fashion, and I'll say that the classic Hawaiian Kona Wahoo lure really deserves recognition in any list of Wahoo lures. Oh, no, oh, no, oh, no, gotta love oh, no fishing in Hawaii. And while I'm thinking about Hawaiian-style lures, I want to give a shout-out to Pop Fishing and Marine of Honolulu, an amazing tackle shop with what has to be the largest selection of trolling skirts for Ono, Ahi, Mahi, Mahi, and Marlin I have ever seen. And brah, they are just down Nimitz Highway from Zippies, and man, could I go for some Zippies chili moco right about now, brah. Oh, man, I am off on a food trip now. So let me rein this in and just say my number 10 spot goes to those classic Hawaiian-style trolling lures made famous by lure designers like Jim Rizzuto. And if you want to learn a thing or two about making Hawaiian-style lures, you should check out Jim's two books on the subject. All right, number nine. Sorry about that. Let me get back on track here and offer up my number nine Wahoo trolling lure as Mag Base and Cerro Wahoo Lure. These are some pretty uniquely designed lures with stainless steel heads that rattle and bubble when trolled. These are open-faced lures designed to be trolled fast. They also have great reliability in running straight, which is crucial when running a multi-lure spread. And they come in 8, 16, and 30-ounce sizes, so you've got a lot of flexibility in depth and speed preferences. I've heard this style of lure referred to as cowbell-style lures, and you know what they say, more cowbell. At number eight, I want to give props to Live Target Spanish mackerel and cigar minnow trolling baits, which are really effective trolling lures. One of the things that I love about these lures are their oversized bills, which push the lures down deeper than a lot of other trolling lures. These tend to dive between 15 and 20 feet. These are those kinds of great generic trolling lures that I've caught king mackerel, blackfin tuna, and wahoo on, and they've been effective enough to earn a spot in my wahoo arsenal. One point of clarification, Live Target makes two versions of each of these lures, one tro trolling lure size and one jerkbait size. So be sure when you're ordering them, you order the trolling versions if you've got Wahoo on the mind. All right, number seven. I pretty much like, you know, all of the trolling lures that Fathom produces, but when it comes to Wahoo, my overall number seven Wahoo lure is Fathom's Fat Boy Lead Medium 9-Inch Trolling Lure. And part of what I love about this lure is its weight. Unrigged, it weighs 13 ounces. And that weight, I think, helps when trolling for Wahoo at those higher speeds of upwards of 14 plus knots. And that weight help keep, helps keep the lure subservice at those speeds and in a straight line. It's got a straight, straight run to it. And when I'm running multi-lure spread, that straight run action helps keep things in line rather than tangling, especially on wide turns. The Fathom Fat Boy Lead Medium 9-inch lure is available in nine head colors, and they all have those great Fathom recessed eyes. And I have to admit, too, that because it's Fathom that makes them available rigged and unrigged, and I can be pretty lazy sometimes, and I tend to get them pre-rigged, which is a great option, too. All right, number six. My number six Wahoo lure may seem out of place to you, given the kinds of other lures I've been talking about. But I got to say, I love the versatility of the classic Huntington drone spoon when paired with a planer. It's like Sea Striker planers. I like those. I run these spoons a lot for blackfin, tuna, and kingfish. 
but I find they are just as effective for Wahoo. All right, at number five, we have the Black Bart high-speed Wahoo lures. Now, the first thing you got to understand about Black Bart lures is that Captain Bart Miller designs his lures with that classic Hawaiian design and tradition and experience that I mentioned in my number 10 position. And all of his lures are high-quality professional-grade lures. But when it comes to Wahoo, it's his medium tackle line in the San Sal candy series that just light up the Wahoo. Now, I'll tell you, Black Bart lures ain't cheap, but they are worth every penny for those lures, especially for tournament anglers. And if you haven't seen the Black Bart eye design with that classic frigate silhouette, man, you're missing a work of art right there. The first time I saw that eye in one of his Marlin lures, I wanted to frame that thing and hang it in my living room. All right, number four. Tied for my number four position are two great lures from Yozuri, the Yozuri Bonita and the Yozuri Vibe High Speed. I got to say the high-speed vibe is a rock or more like a solid nugget. It weighs in close to three ounces and sinks like a rock. But because of that weight, I do find that when you get up into those speeds of 15 to 20 knots, the action becomes chaotic and the lure will spin on you. But below 15 or so, man, this thing is deadly. I also love the color change technology they use on these lures. As to the Yozuri Bonita, well, Yozuri updated the Bonita design just a few years ago, and it now includes that same color, color change technology as the Vibe. Its unique body shape is designed to be trolled at speeds between 6 and 15 knots, so not quite as fast as some of the other high-speed trolling lures out there, but it's earned its reputation as a top-tier Wahoo lure, not to mention tuna and sailfish as well. It comes in two size options, a six and three quarter inch and an eight and one quarter version, and there are seven color variations. Its action is best described, described as a tight wobble. It's just a great lure to have in your Wahoo spread. All right, my number one, yeah, skipping around here, my number three position, I'm going to give props to Nomad Tackle Design. I had thought about putting the Nomad DTX minnow in at number three because it's such a great lure. But of all the Nomad lures, I really find the Mad Scad to be a great Wahoo lure. Do keep in mind, though, that Nomad makes a casting version of the Mad Scad designed for inshore fishing, but it's their larger Mad Scad 150, which is a six inch sinking model, and the Mad Scad 190, which is a seven and a quarter deep fast sinking version that are really designed for Wahoo trolling. I prefer the MadScad 190 fast sinking model that works really well in that 8 to 12 knot trolling speed range. I know a few Wahoo aficionados who like to run the MadScad in the back of a spread that features the Nomad DTX minnows ahead of them. Okay, so at number two, I'm going to go classic with the tried and true, always golden Rapala, Rapala X-Rap Magnum. Look, let's face it, if you're trolling nearshore or offshore, you need Rapala X-Rap Magnums. Whether digging for grouper or snapper or trolling for tuna, wahoo, or sailfish, the X-Rap Magnum is simply a reliable go-to lure. And when you run offshore at speeds of 8 to 13 knots, the X-Rap Magnum is wahoo candy. They come in five sizes, and keep in mind that when you select X-Rap Magnum sizes, the names of the sizes identify the depth the lure runs at. So the XR Mag 10 runs to 10 feet, the XR Mag 15 to 15 feet, and so on up to the XR Mag 40. The sleek body is available in two dozen color patterns, and the textured translucent internal holographic foil, 3D holographic eyes all add up to make the Rapala X-Rap Magnum a downright reliable Wahoo lure. 
All right, so that brings us to the fishing professor's number one favorite Wahoo trolling lure. But before we get to the lure reveal party, let's get a quick recap of the previous nine. At number 10, we've got the generic Hawaiian Kona Wahoo lures. At nine, Mag Bay's Sincero Wahoo lure. At eight, live target Spanish mackerel and cigar minnow trolling baits. At seven, Fathom's Fat Boy Lead Medium 9-Inch Trolling Lure. At 6, the Classic Huntington Drone Spoon. At 5, Black Bart's High Speed Wahoo Lures. At 4, the Yozuri Bonita and the Yozuri Vibe High Speed. At number 3, Nomad Designs Mascad. At number 2, Rapala's X-Rap Magnum. And that brings us to my number one Wahoo Lure. Are you ready for this? Hold on to your hats, ladies and germs. In my experience, the best Wahoo lure out there is waiting for it, waiting for it. CH Lures Wahoo Whacker XL. This is a big, fast, uncomplicated trolling lure. It weighs in at 11 ounces and is 16 inches long. The resin head design gives you straight and true troll lines with great swimming action and the double skirt design. These lures stay subsurface even at speeds of up to 20 knots. And keep in mind that the Wahoo Whacker only comes in three colors because these are the three colors that experienced Wahoo anglers know are the best for the big hoos. Red and black, purple and black, and blue and white. No muss, no fuss. Just get to the fundamental colors and go after them hoos. You can get the whackers pre-rigged or unrigged. And like I said, I tend to prefer pre-rigged because I'd rather fish than rig. So that is my top 10 Wahoo trolling lures. I hope you found my list to match up with yours to some degree or another. Of course, as always, feel free to email me at Sid at InventiveFishing.com with your comments and suggestions about my choices here. Or if you have suggestions, other lures I should consider, or even other top 10s you'd like to have me add to future episodes. As always, if you like a fishing professor's top 10 about a particular fishing related thing, just send me an email and I'll see about adding your thing to my list for future top 10s. If you have complaints or want to call me names and tell me I'm wrong, feel free to contact me too at my complaint line at sid at biteme.yourmom. That's it for this week's top 10. Oh no, oh no, oh no. Let's get back to the rodcasting. Well, that brings us to the end of another episode of The Fishing Professor Show. I hope you enjoyed the show. I want to thank Joe Hector of Extreme Kayak Fishing and the Raw H2O podcast for joining me in the Inshore Offshore Digital Studio today. And for all of you yak fanatics out there, be sure to check out the Extreme Kayak Tournament Series as you'll find the Extreme Challenges to be some of the best tournaments you'll ever participate in. Before we say goodbye, I do have a message for all of our brothers and sisters out there behind the line. The bait is in the well. I say again, the bait is in the well. And that brings us to the end of another Fishing Professor show. Thanks for listening and be sure to subscribe to the channel so you don't miss a single episode. We've got a great new episode coming up next week and I hope you'll give a listen as soon as it drops next week. As always, please be sure to share the Fishing Professor show with everyone you know. Let's get those listener numbers up, up, up because I'm in tatters. Oop, shadoobie. Pitta patta pit. All right. As always, too, if you have a comment or a question about anything on this week's show or have recommendations for future top tens, bourbon breaks, interviews, or information about specific products, please feel free to email me at sid at inventifishing.com. 
Be sure to check out the Inventive Fishing webpages and be sure to follow us on Twitter and friend us on Facebook at Inventive Fishing. I will be back next week with another episode. And until then, this is Sid Dobrin, the fishing professor. Fish on. The Fishing Professor Show is copyrighted by Inventive Fishing, LLC. Any rebroadcast of the podcast without the consent from Inventive Fishing, LLC is strictly prohibited. Fish on!